Good morning, brothers and sisters. My name is Patrick Bowerman, if you don't know me. Uh, I have the privilege of serving here at River Oaks as a pastor to student ministries, uh, as an elder, uh, and I am extremely thankful to be able to bring the Word of God this morning. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. As we begin our message today, we're going to read from the Word, uh, verses 1 through 7. So here's the word that the Lord has for us this morning. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves are once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to our various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. As Titus opens here in verses 1 and 2, Paul is giving Titus seven commands that the the believers in Crete are to be thinking about as they're, you know, in, in, or, or to judge their conduct by uh, among them, you know, themselves in the world, uh, among authorities, and everybody that they're, they're coming into contact with. These seven commands are, are how they are called to live. Paul says, remind the church in Crete to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to all people. As you, as you hear those words, does this track out, does it strike you that this is hard? These words are hard even as we know they're good. You know, what would an honest assessment of your own life be if you're looking at verses um, one and two in, the, in these seven commands. Have you been quarrelsome? Are you ready for every good work? Are you avoiding speaking evil of, of all people, including those in government or including your bosses? You know, if we struggle with these commands now as Christians who are filled by the Spirit, then we recognize that it would be impossible for you to do these commands on your own strength. You cannot do these by mustering up the will within yourself to obey these commands. It's impossible. Our passage in Titus 3 is set up in a similar way to what we heard last week as Art was preaching for the very end of Titus chapter 2. And I think God is repeating this idea in a similar way to help us understand it. In God's kindness, he is showing us that it is the gospel the gospel that fuels our, our obedience. 
It is the gospel that enables us to obey God's commands. You know, it's not the other way around. Like we don't obey and then get the gospel, but it's the gospel that enables us to serve and love God. It's because we've been made alive. We've been cleaned and and filled with the spirit that we are able to love and honor our leaders and obey them. To show perfect courtesy to all people is an outflow of what God has first done in us. It doesn't come from within. You can't muster up what God requires in verses 1 and 2. Instead, these qualities must flow out of a changed heart. And so for for us, in order to see how we can do these things that we're called to do in verses 1 and 2, we need to first see who we were. And Paul's going to show us that in verse 3. He's going to show us the the darkness and the depravity of of who we were. But then he also shows us the beauty of the gospel in verses 4 through 7, where he shows us that it is the gospel that enables us. It's the gospel where Christ comes and makes a way for us to be made righteous. The order of events matters here. It matters how we would approach thinking about how we would live, uh, you know, in light of verses 1 and 2. So in math, uh, if, you, if you have an equation, the order in which you solve the equation is really important. So if you're a math fan, you may love my example. If you hate math, I'm very sorry, but we're going to try it anyway. Right, so if you look up on the screen, right, there's an equation. I want you to be thinking about what is the answer to what I've got up, up, up on the screen, okay? So I would say this, though, as you're solving it. You can't simply just solve the equation from left to right as if you're just reading and, and hope to get the right answer. It doesn't work that way. You know, there's a certain order of operations, a way that you have to approach this, uh, this problem so that you can come to the right solution. And there's an acronym. I didn't make this up, but it's a way that you can remember what are the order of operations we have to go through, and it's called PEMDAS. There's also a sentence. I can't remember what it is, but PEMDAS. Right, you start with parentheses. So if there's parentheses, you, you start there. And then you, if there's exponents, you would solve that. And then you do multiply and divide together, left to right. And then you do addition and subtraction. So as you are looking at this equation, you're thinking about the answer. If you came up with the solution of 28, good try, but that's incorrect, (laughs) right? So you have to multiply first. So 10 times 2 plus 4. The answer here is, is 24, not 28. If you mess up the order of operations, you come to the wrong answer. You know, it's one thing if you're talking about math problems and taking tests, you know, that's important. But it's another thing altogether when you're talking about how is it that we love and serve God? How is it that we obey the Lord, right? The order matters here. We need to recognize that we were sinners, lost, you know, in our sin. But, but God in his mercy and grace meets us with his gospel. He sends his son Jesus to redeem us to fill us with his spirit. And and it's through that relationship that we are then able to obey what God would call us to do. But the order matters. And so this morning for us, as we uh, think about what's the main idea of the passage, I would say it's this. God saves us according to his mercy so that we would be free from our sin and ready to do every good work. So God, it's according to God's mercy that he saves us. And he frees us from the bondage of sin to the, to the way in which we used to be so that we would be transformed, that we would be made alive, that we would be ready for every good work. And we're going to walk through this section thinking about how is it that we get to one and two? How is it that we're able to do this? So we're going to start in verse three. We're going to see who we were. 
And then we're going to hear how the gospel answers that and then ultimately how it's the solution for us to be able to do what God calls us to do. So let's pray and ask the Lord to lead us as we study his word. So Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word comforts and corrects and challenges us. But I'm thankful, especially as we see in Titus 3, that your word brings hope. We have hope in Christ. We have good news in this passage of the gospel that you are able to redeem and transform us, to give us a new heart, to make us alive, God. We rejoice in that. Lord, you are able to lead us in good works. And so, Father, I pray that we would joyfully hear what you have for us today. Help us, Lord, for we are perpetually in need that you are able to meet that need. So thank you, Lord. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we begin, we're going we're gonna to start, like I said, in verse 3, and we're going to see where our failure here is, is to keep God's commands. As you look to verse 3 in the text, we hear these words. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. As Paul is writing to Titus and to tell you know, the church in Crete these things, he's reminding them of who they were before they knew Christ. But in verse 3, Paul isn't just pointing the finger and saying, you were like this. Notice what he says. He includes himself in the language. He says, we were foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray. He's including himself because this is a situation that's common for all mankind. So where he's talking about the church in Crete, he's also talking about us. And this is what he has to say. He says, in your life before Christ, he makes kind of two critiques. The first is this, you did not submit to God's authority. Verse 1, he's calling us to obey authorities and to live rightly with all people. He says here, you didn't obey authority, especially God's authority. And you didn't live rightly with God's people or, or all people. He says, instead of, of submitting to God's authority, you were disobedient, slaves to various passions and pleasures. He says, your lives were governed or lived by what's foolish because you did not live by God's wisdom or in proper relationship with him. And as he's talking about this idea of, of, of not submitting to God's authority, he says, you see it in two different ways. The first is this. He makes it plain that we were willful participants in our actions. In other words, we were willfully participating in foolishness and disobeying God. We actually thought that our sin that we were pursuing would bring us joy, and so that's why we pursued it. We thought it would bring us peace, and so we ran after it. We thought that it could satisfy those deeper longings in us, and so we ran headlong or protected those sinful things that we loved. But instead, they brought death. They were, they were disobedient to God. John Stott says, as a description of this, we were both mentally and morally depraved. It was not just, it was not just disobedience in our actions, but it was a disobedience in the heart that we had going on. Every 
aspect of our lives was touched. We were willfully running after this. But not just that. We were willfully running, but also, he says that we were victims. We were deceived. We were enslaved by the enemy. We were blind to see our sin. Blind to see what its outcome would be. Blind to see that it doesn't give us life, but it gives us death. And if you think about David, when you remember Nathan comes up and confronts David, David is a man after God's own heart. David loved God. David was blind to his own sin in that moment. And Nathan has to say, you are the man. David, an unbeliever, how much more blind are they than he? So verse 3 is sober. It's a, it's a clear-eyed description of our lives as unbelievers. And as Christians, it should lead us to show great compassion to those who don't know Jesus. They're not only actively in participating in unrighteousness, but they are deceived and they are enslaved to it. They need to be rescued just as we need to be rescued. And they don't even know it. But brothers and sisters, we have hope and life to bring with the gospel. Why is Paul sharing this? Why, why, is he, why is he rooting you know, how they're to act? Why is he starting here and saying, you need to understand this is who you were? I think he's wanting to remind the church in Crete who they were and that they didn't obey God's authority, but also remind them again, the other thing we're calling you to do to keep these relationships uh, God-centered, to live in a way with other people that's good, that also was corrupted. Both were corrupted. The, the things that you think you could do, if you think you could do it, were both broken. And he says here, he uses the description, he says there was malice and envy, and ultimately we were hated by others and hating one another. Malice being, you know, thinking up ways to injure other people, envy, desiring what other people have, and then hatred. And you may think about your own life and be like, you know, even though I was blind in my sin, I wasn't, I wasn't like that. I wasn't, I wasn't you know, full of malice and, and envy. Now, let me ask you this. Were you angry? Because Jesus says that underneath our anger is a heart of murder. You know, hatred toward someone else. Or did you gossip? Were you, were you spreading words to hurt people or to kill them in the eyes of someone else? It's a similar kind of thing. Do you celebrate when people fail because you're kind of jealous of them? Or is it is envy arising as you're comparing yourself to other people and thinking, you know, I deserve that. They don't. That should be mine. You know, it, it, there's you know, such a heart that is bred in that in like social media today. Like it's so easy to fall into that trap. But Paul's bringing these to mind to show us that these are fruits that come out of a spirit of disobedience and rebellion. You know, malice and envy and hatred, these are the product of a heart that's twisted and cold. It's inward focused and it's dead to the things of God because of our sin. But it's not just, you know, in the worst sort of actions that there was corruption. Even in our best actions, in the things that we thought that we were doing right, in those good things as unbelievers that we said we would do, there's also corruption. If you knew me before I was a Christian, I became a Christian at 16. 
If you knew me, you might have said, you know, he's a nice guy. You know, he, he, he's, he's a kind, you know, fella or whatever. No, you probably don't say fella, but <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you do. But I'll tell you, there was kind of two motivating factors for the way that I operated. In the way that I was, you know, desiring to, to do well in school or to, to do well in sports or to, to do the things that my parents would call me to do or the things that were the right things to do, part of the reason I would do that was I was motivated because I wanted praise from people. I wanted them to see that I was good. I wanted them to think that I was smart. If I could get a ribbon or a certificate or a medal, I was all about it. I can remember so much so in fourth grade that the teacher would give out stickers, not even like a fancy medal, but a sticker. And you get stickers for all sorts of things. So what do we do? Put the sheet on my desk and the stickers all over it. Because I wanted to see, you know, as we're competing to the most stickers, like I've got the most. So I was motivated by praise of people to, to, to want to think that I was good. But there was also another thing that was going on too. So, you know, I was also in the things that I was trying to avoid or not do. I would not do them because I was afraid. I was fearful of condemnation. I was, I was fearful of getting into trouble or the consequences. And so there's certain things that I wouldn't do, but it wasn't because I wanted to honor God. They weren't done out of faith. It's because I was wanting to avoid consequences. And so either I was trying to honor myself in getting a name for myself, or I was trying to avoid consequences, both of which is idolatry of myself. Those things that I would have said were good were not good. They weren't done trusting in God and in faith in him. They were, they were done for myself. And so those works that we do in unrighteousness do not please God because they're not done in faith. And so Paul's helping us to see this. He's pointing out this ugly truth in verse 3 because it highlights all the more the power of the gospel to change hearts. We needed to be rescued out of the pit. You've got to realize that. We needed someone who would come down and save us from being deceived or from our disobedience. For Paul says we once were this way. Once we were this way, but no more. That's his point. We, we aren't like this anymore. We have been transformed. We used to be like that. But there is hope for true change if you've been saved by Jesus. This is part of the reason I love being in Christian community. Why it's so good for us to be in growth groups. You know, as we're sitting across the table from one another and we're hearing about how God has transformed the other person, how God has worked in such a way to, to free them from sin, to change their passions, to help them love their, their family when it's been hard or, or to pursue after things that are good. You can see that God is able to change. You know, when you're sharing about how the Spirit has brought you freedom from those old sins that held on to us for so long, it's a reminder that Christ has a power to break those sins in your life as well. And when you're talking about how God is growing your affections for Him, how He's inflaming your love for Him, gives me hope when my affections aren't inflamed that it can be, that God is able to change that and make it good. See, I praise God that each Christian is a walking testimony of God's faithfulness to redeem and rescue sinners. Your story, it matters, dear believer. Your testimony to one another matters because it tells of the miraculous transforming, life-giving, soul-satisfying, 
you know, heart cleansing work of God in your life. That's who we were, but that's no longer who we are. This is what Paul is trying to drive them to. So how are we changed? How are we changed from the darkness of verse 3 to want to honor authority and to love everyone as God would desire us to do that? You see, Paul roots this change in the goodness and loving kindness of God. This is how we change. See, this matters. God doesn't leave us in our disobedience, but he actually pursues us. He, because of his love and mercy and grace, he comes to us and he rescues us. And so let's see this in verses 4 through 7. So we've heard verse 3 where it's a description of our old self. And in verses 4 through 7, we hear the glorious good news of the gospel. And this, uh, these verses in Greek, they're one long, run-on, glorious sentence. Paul is just getting everything out in one, in one sentence. This is how good the gospel is. And so let's, let's take it together. And as we look through the gospel message in verses 4 through 7, um, here's going to be the way that we're walking through this. Uh, we're going to see, you know, what is the source of our salvation in verse 4? And then what does your salvation rest upon at the beginning of, of verse 5? And then how are you saved? Like what, what does God actually do when he saves you? You see that at the end of 5, uh, all the way through the beginning of chapter, or verse 7? And then lastly, what is the goal of your salvation? You see this at the end of verse 7. So let's start at the beginning. What is the source of your salvation? Just like last week where we saw that grace is a person and hope is a person and the glory of God is a person in the sense that uh, Paul says they appeared in the person of Jesus. We see in verse 4 that the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior has appeared in the person of Jesus. Paul tells us that when we were in the depths of our depravity, when we were lost, when we were stuck, when we could not get out, when we were spiritually dead because of our sin, God sent his son, Jesus, who is the personification of his goodness and loving kindness. He sends him in the flesh to rescue us. At the moment of our greatest need, the father sends his most precious son. Think about that. This most precious son to save you, who is in disobedience to him. He sends his greatest gift. In the greatest act of kindness and mercy that the world has ever known, the second person of the Trinity, the one who is the image of the invisible God, the one who, by, the one who has created all things, the one who is before all things, the one who holds all things together, the one who holds all things together in the sense that he is, he is the fullness of deity dwelling bodily. He has that in him. He puts on flesh in order to save you. This is a miracle of the incarnation. What changes you from being disobedient, foolish, and haters of God? It's the reality that God saves. Motivated by his goodness and kindness, he sends his son to save us. This is what makes it possible for you to change. God intervenes on your behalf. 
You know, he comes to kick down the door of your rebellion, of your sin, and he rescues you out from it through the work of his son and by the Holy Spirit. You know, he's not sitting on his, on his hands, sitting on the sidelines, hoping that someone can do something, hoping that you can rescue yourself. That's not the picture of what our God does. No, he moves most powerfully. And he says that there is nothing that can stop his saving work. Not your sin, not whatever enemies might come against us. Nothing can stop him from saving. This is Ephesians 2 in action. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. You were enslaved to Satan. You were living in the passions of your flesh as children of wrath. But God moved he makes us alive together with Christ. You see, Paul tells us the bad news in verse 3 so that you would see just how good and beautiful and, and awesome the kindness of the Lord really is. But God's kindness does not lead him to overlook our sin. It doesn't lead him to, to, to sweep it under the rug But as verse 4 says, he sends his son Jesus to come and save you. But this salvation will cost his life for yours. His blood must be shed to make atonement for your sins. This is what it costs for God to save you. To really the question shouldn't be what is the source of our salvation, but who? And the answer is God is the one who provides our salvation through Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So who is the source of our salvation? Is God. What does your salvation rest upon? We'll look to verses 5 through 7. I want you to hear what's emphasized in 5 through 7. This is what it says. He saved us because of works done by us. Not, I'm sorry, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The emphasis here is on God's action, his movement, his saving that he offers through his Son and by his Spirit. And so we see in verse 5 that you aren't saved as some sort of payment for your good works done in righteousness, as if God owed you something. Because frankly, the thing that you earned by any of your works was wrath. That's what you earned. Because there weren't any good works in your lost state. You were totally bankrupt, penniless, without a single good work to your name. That's the reality. This is because in your sin, you could not do the good works that God requires. It's impossible for you to do that. But if you think that you will be accepted by God because of your own righteousness, even after what I just said, if you still think, yeah, you know, God's still going to accept me, or because of my own good works, you know, he's going to love me, I'll tell you that you're deceived. And that you are still foolish. This is Paul's words, not mine. But you're deceived and foolish and enslaved still to your sin if you think that it's your works that are going to save you. But instead of, instead of a salvation that we make happen for ourselves, we see a better message in verse 5. 
The reality is that we are saved not because of our own good works, but because God desired to save us according to his mercy. It's his mercy. It's the reason. It's the the foundation for the reason that we are saved. It's because of his mercy. We need to recognize also that the Lord, he doesn't just do merciful things, but he is mercy. Contrast that with, you know, maybe someone that was really close to you, a parent that wasn't merciful. Our God is not just extremely merciful. He is mercy. If you compare him with any other God, none of them are like him in that he is described as as mercy. You see, our God is merciful and kind and faithful, even when we're not, especially when we're not. When we weren't lovable or faithful or obedient, God in his mercy saves us anyways. See, this mercy is not just a passive attitude, but his mercy motivates him. It's because of his mercy that he acts. It's because of his mercy that he sends his son, Jesus, to save us. And by the giving of his Holy Spirit to regenerate us, it's it's resting on his mercy. And so God is the cause of our salvation through Christ Jesus and by his Holy Spirit. It's clearly Trinitarian in language. All three members of the Godhead are instrumental in our salvation, both in its origin and its working and in its effectiveness. And if that's true, which the scriptures say it is, then there's nothing that you can add to the work that God has done to make it better. And there's also nothing that you can do to take away from the effectiveness of the salvation that he's also provided for you. It's his work that saves, his work that draws us to himself. Our good works don't save us, but our good works flow out from faith in Christ. And in that way, they adorn the doctrine of God our Savior by showing the beauty of the gospel, and it shows that a change has happened in our hearts. And so it is his mercy that our salvation rests upon. So as we move to the third part, it's how? How then are you saved? What does God do in our salvation? I don't know if you watch YouTube videos very much, but I'm a sucker for a certain kind of YouTube video. Uh, it's, a, it's a specific kind of renovation video where you'll see like a, a picture like this where they'll show some kind of old tool or an instrument. And so you know in this video, like they're going to they're gonna take about 10 minutes video time, but it's longer in real life, where they're going to they're gonna renovate this object and they're going to make it look new. So there's a second picture. This is the same wrench. Can you show the first one again? Old one? Same wrench, just cleaned up. The skill on display in these videos is, is really impressive. But what most stands out to me in them is seeing you know, decades of rot and rust cleaned and patched up so that what's left behind is no longer destined for the garbage heap. It's no longer a trash, a piece of trash just to be thrown away, but it's brought back to usefulness and it's made like new. And so there's all sorts of these kind of videos where you just say like, man, this is amazing. But I don't think that this is a perfect illustration of what God is doing in us. Because as we think about salvation, we realize that we don't just need to be cleaned up on the outside. 
We don't need to just be buffed and polished and, you know, smoothed out. We also need to be cleaned on the inside. We don't need to just be refurbished. We instead need to be made new. We need to be made alive where we were previously dead in our sin before. We need to have a new heart, a heart that longs for God, who loves God, that is soft and pliable. It's not a heart of stone anymore, but it's a heart of flesh. And this is what we hear that God does in us, in our salvation. He makes us new. And so in verses 5 through 6, we hear that we are saved. And in the beginning of 7, we're saved by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So he washes us, he regenerates and renews us, and he fills us with his Spirit. Three major ideas here. But the first is this, he makes you clean. Let that just settle in for a second. God makes you clean through the new birth. You know, as the Spirit is applying his word in your hearts, leading you to place your faith in Jesus, you are made clean by the blood of the Lamb that is applied to you. Your old filth and shame and sin has been removed. This isn't just an external washing like the cleaning of the outside of the cup. No, he has changed you inside and actually made you clean. All of those things that you used to be, those things that used to stain you, the blotches on you that you remember, he washes them whiter than snow. The stain of sin has been removed from you, brothers and sisters. But not just that, but you're given a new heart that's alive. You haven't been repaired, but you've been made new. Where you see this idea of regeneration and renewal, it's the idea that, that both are contained here, that you've been transformed from the inside. 2 Corinthians 5.17, which we've already quoted today, says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In that new birth, God gives you new desires and new affections. He gives you a heart that loves God. He's he's training you to begin to desire more and more his word and his righteousness as he transforms you. He leads you to serve him for his glory. But he makes you new. So when the enemy seeks to remind you of your old sinful ways, or maybe it's just yourself reminding yourself of your old sinful ways, or the temptation is for you to return to your old sin, you know, that, that slop of your old sin, you know, like it just, if you feel that draw pulling you back, remember the words of this verse. If you're in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone. It's not who you are anymore. Your debt has been paid for. You are free from the power of sin and you're free from the penalty of sin because of Jesus. And because of him, your shame has been carried away. You no longer have to bear it. Who you are now is not who you used to be if you are in Christ. You are a new creature. No longer enslaved by your old passions, no longer defined by your old sin. You have been washed. You've been made clean. You are pure. This is what God says about you. 
And if God says this about you, who can argue with him? He says that you have been given a new heart that is soft and it beats for the Lord. But we recognize that we still, you know, we struggle. You know, even having this new heart, there's times where we wrestle with God. Our heart is fickle. What do we do in that situation? What helps us? What transforms us all the more? It's the presence of the Holy Spirit. Most thrillingly of all, we see in this passage that God fills us with his Holy Spirit. You know, no longer do we have to go after where God is, but he has come to us in the person of his son, and now he indwells us by his Holy Spirit. We see that the Holy Spirit is the strength, it is the the source by which we are empowered to do the things that God calls us to do. The Holy Spirit empowers you to fight against sin and to obey God. We see this in Galatians 5.16, which says, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The Holy Spirit produces godly fruit in you, not like the fruits that we saw in verse 3, but instead he produces in you love and joy, peace and patience and kindness and all of the rest. And he gives to you good gifts so that you can serve in his church, that you can be faithful in ministering to one another, and that you can bring glory to his name. The Spirit brings both of these about in you. The Holy Spirit reveals truth, helps us to understand and know God's word, to apply it in our situation, to see the depths of it, that it's never ending. The more we spend time in God's word, the more sweetness and depth and beauty we see as the Spirit brings light. But we also see that the Spirit guides and directs us. Romans 8, 14 and Galatians 5, 18. And the Spirit gives us assurance that we are His. See this in Ephesians 1, that the Spirit is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. 1 John 4, 13, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. Fills us with his spirit as a guarantee that we are his, that we are pure, that we are righteous. All three of these ideas, cleansing and regeneration and filling of the spirit, are the fulfillment of God's promises. How do we know that he's good? How do we know that he's trustworthy? How do we know that he keeps his promises? Just look to Ezekiel 36. A promise made multiple hundreds of years before. This is what God says he will do in the Old Testament, and we're seeing in our passage what he actually does. This is what he says. I will take you from the nations. I will gather you from all the countries. I will bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all of your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you to do what? And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Remember, as we're talking about how is it that we're able to do the commands that he calls us to do in verses one through two, he washes us. 
He transforms and gives us a new heart. He fills us with his spirit so that we can walk in his statutes and obey his rules. In other words, God saves us according to his mercy, the main idea of the text, so that we are free from our sin and ready for every good work as the spirit's working in us. Again, notice in that section how many times God says I in that passage. I will take you. I will sprinkle you. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will give you a heart of flesh. He is the one who is doing this. But what's awesome as well is that this promise has grown. In Ezekiel 36, it's it's for Israel. We see in Titus 3 that it's for the whole world. It's for any who place their faith in Christ. It's not just Jews, but it's Jews and Gentiles. Everyone. This gospel is for all. Glory be to God. So our ability, ability to obey God and to serve God is totally dependent on the work that he has done. You see, salvation includes more than just having a new birth or being renewed. It also means, as we see at the the beginning of verse 7, that you have been justified. You've been justified before God because of his grace, because of Jesus. Justification means that we have been declared to be holy or righteous before God. That is who you are. If you are in Christ, you are holy. Because Jesus has paid your debt and imputed to you his righteousness, you stand before God as if you have never sinned. It's because of the imputed righteousness of Christ that you are welcome to come come into his presence and to stay there forever. You know, this is true for us. You know, not just in, in our weakness, but God sees, it, sees us as if we have actually completed those things in verses one and two because of Jesus, because he faithfully upholds all of God's commands and that righteousness is imputed to us. And so God counts his standing to you because of this justification, because of the salvation that he gives on Jesus' behalf, or or on our behalf by Jesus. So how are you saved? We're saved by the thing that we sung in the very first song today. We're saved because my debt is paid. The victory is won. The Lord is my salvation. So we say glory be to God the Father. Glory be to Christ the Son. Glory be to the Spirit, the Lord is my salvation. And so, brothers and sisters, what is the goal then of our salvation as we look at the very last verse? What is the, what's the goal? What's the, what's the purpose then? You see, the goal, it says in verse 7, is that we become heirs with Christ and that we have an eternal, a hope of eternal life, which is both real now and one that will be fully realized in the future. We have the hope of eternal life that is sure and steadfast. It's resting on who God is. We see this back in Titus chapter 1. It it is, we have the hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. So every person that God has justified and regenerated and filled with his Holy Spirit are, as Romans 8, 17 puts it, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The inheritance that Christ has merited, he shares with us. He gives to us. We are co-heirs with Christ. 
Our God determined to give us this hope of eternal life before the foundation of the world. And it's true. It's true for us. Even though God knew that we would rebel and he knew that we would be foolish and he knew that we would be disobedient and all of the rest, God in his kindness and his goodness, God in his mercy sets his love upon us so that we would be redeemed from our sin and so that we would have fellowship with him forever. So he's, he's leading us so that we would live our lives in the present with the hope of eternal life that we know is sure and steadfast. We live today knowing that what God has in store for us is sure and true, that we have uh, eternal life with him. It's the culmination of the saving work of God. He has so utterly saved us that we will be united with him, to live with him where he dwells. In fact, his dwelling place will be with man in his eternal kingdom. And we have an eternal life, an everlasting life. Our lives will be forever marked by the righteousness of Christ. We will eternally have joy in the Son. And we will have fellowship with our God forevermore. This is the end goal of our salvation. And it brings glory to our God forever. So the answer to the question that we had at the beginning, how do we do what is required in verses 1 and 2? What has so thoroughly changed us from who we are in verse 3 that we're able to be faithful and faithfully live in the way that God would call us to do in the world? It's our experience of the fullness of the salvation that God provides. By the washing of regeneration, by the filling of his spirit, by him justifying us and ultimately giving us an eternal hope that motivates us and empowers us and enables us to live like we are called to live. And even as we fail to do these things perfectly, we know that God's salvation is, is uh, established in us. We know that he will not fail, that the promise of our fellowship with God will last because it has been accomplished by Jesus and it's been applied by his spirit. And so brothers and sisters, as we're talking about these things today, all of them are coming together as we celebrate the salvation that Christ has, has, has done for us, the way in which he's transformed us, leads us to a celebration meal as we celebrate his good work. You see, the communion meal that we're participating in this morning serves to remind us of the beauty of salvation that Jesus has provided for us. And it's a reminder of the surety of our hope. For the elements of this meal point not only to the hope that we have as sinners, that Jesus gave his body and shed his blood for us, but as we participate in this meal, we remember his sacrifice. We remember the redemption that he has accomplished in us, but we don't just remember it. We are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, for we know that he is going to return. We know that he is fully going to redeem us from our sin. He is finally going to overthrow every enemy. And so this meal is symbolic of the true and lasting fellowship that we have with God forever. So I'm going to pray, and then I'll uh, give you some instruction and invite you to come forward. So Father, we thank you. Thank you for the gospel, Lord. Thank you that even though we are we're sinners lost at the fall, God, you pursued us. You sent your son to live in our place, God. 
he, he willingly took our sin upon himself and died the death that we were owed and gives to us his righteousness. I'm thankful, Father, that as we celebrate this communion meal, we, we rejoice in hope to know that Christ is our, is our hope. Lord, that it's by his body and blood that we are made righteous. And Lord, we long for his return. And so, Lord, lead us as we take this meal to do it joyfully and thankful for the work of Christ in our lives. God, I pray that you would, uh, you know, work through your spirit in just encouraging us uh, and working what you would desire to do in us today through the word proclaimed. Lord, I thank you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.